we went in and we did the five minutes and the market director said, no, you can leave. And it, and it was <laughs> like the walk of shame, you know. It, it, <laughs> Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with the modern day Batman and Robin, Mr. Phil Jones and Mr. Dan Mordup. How are you, Mr. Jones? Uh, I'm absolutely great. Am I Batman or Robin, by the way? I can't. Uh, we, we never decide this. I think you, you you titled yourself Robin, but we all know you're Batman, really. <laughs> Come on, we all know that. So, yeah, I'll be I'll be the boy wonder for today. Um, Robin, <laughs> Robin was the boy wonder, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll be the boy wonder today. Yeah. Um, what's what's new in your world? What's happening since our last our last chat? Well, there's been a lot of snow. Which yeah, you've probably, true. You've probably had that yourself, because we've, we've got this Kent-London thing going on, haven't we? So yeah. Uh, you'll be glad to know that uh, my favourites, the Ocado <laughs> delivery men, still made it through the snow up that Willoughby Lane. And yesterday we had Liam in a lemon. Oh, Liam the lemon yesterday. There we go. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Who's the favourite again out of all the out of all of our our Ricardo friends? Oh well, they're all they're all. Sometimes their name tallies with the van they're driving. So Liam and the lemon's got a nice little ring to it. And sometimes they just, they just can't be asked. Like <laughs> Fred, Fred in a raspberry doesn't have the same ring to it. Does it doesn't it? have no. It should be like Robin in a raspberry, shouldn't it, or something yeah. like that. There uh, we go. Really lovely news. And I just saw a video this morning, but I became a great uncle on Valentine's Day. Uh, my sister Kath, who today's guest knows her well from years years back, her daughter Sarah and hubby Rohan have just bought baby Rosa into our family that was on valentine's day which is oh lovely she's gorgeous um and finally babs has not been that well this week she's uh, she's had a real tough old week so unlike today's guest who does most of the cooking at their house i actually am rubbish at cooking but she's been shouting at the orders telling me what to chop in what order what to put in the pans and because her wrist has been in a lot of pain so so we've had a, a really good week where i've learned to cook amazing <laughs> i think we need to be spin-off podcast but like a video one you know the phil jones cookery series oh my god <laughs> i do have a speciality which is a cheese on toast special a cheese on toast <laughs> special there we go so phil introduce us to today's guest well today we have the pleasure of being joined by one of the most talented as well as one of the nicest blokes in the creative world Mr. Trevor Chambers. He started out at one of the pioneering digital agencies of the time where he worked on groundbreaking campaigns that set new standards for the industry. His career only recently changed direction when he took on the challenge of heading up all things creative at one of the UK's biggest banks, TSB. We'll be finding out a little bit more about his incredible career, how he dealt with dyslexia his highlights, lowlights, and what it's been like going client side. So I'm going to pass Trevor Chambers into your safe hands, Dan. Welcome, Trevor. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Phil. We always start with this uh, with this question. It's always a deep and meaningful question. But Trevor, if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Oh, yeah, that's... Um, hmm. Well, I'd have to, actually, it'd have, to, it'd have to be two people, if that's okay. I don't know if I could do one. 
probably um, go for it. I just again, you know, being creative, I'm awkward. You got to do, do things <laughs> differently, you know. Um, both these, both I think, amazing creative, creatively in their own field, and very British. I think the obvious thing is to go for sort of famous people, sort of famous sort of people from history or for um, sports stars. But, you know, if you were in the lift, I think you probably need two things. You need music and laughter. So they're the two things that hold us all together and particularly in tough times as well. I think they, those, those things are, and they're the things for me that just, you know, hold everything together and, and, and make the days worth uh, living. So the, the first one really is, is Rick Mail. <laughs> and I think he's one of the greatest comedians of all time. He just makes me roar. He, he did just make me roar. He still does when I see him. He was sort of cool and off the mainstream and very creative. He, and he didn't really tell jokes. He's not sort of, sort of stand-up. He was sort of um, uh, just a very clever comedian who just very characterful and full of life. I mean, I don't know if you go back, I think I'm really... It's sort of early 80s, maybe 81, I think, when he was doing Kevin Turvey Investigates. And you were just drawn into watching him, you know, and he had a lot of sort of um, his movements and facial expressions were genius. And I think they sort of played back to the um, probably my grandfather used to watch Lauren Hardy. And there was that sort of same sort of genius in what the simplicity of comedy you know um and I think he at the time he was described as the sort of post-punk in a way there was that sort of call and he obviously did the young ones and all that so uh very sadly died didn't he unexpectedly I think around in 2014 he was only 56 which is shocking but um beautiful guy fantastic and just a genius um, Good answer. So he'd be there to make me laugh, and then I think there's only one person from a music point of view, and that's Paul Weller. I think um, you know, beautiful songwriter, musician, and again, I think his creativity over the years, you know, 30, 30 odd years of making music, whatever it is. I think he's sixty now, sixty plus. Is just um, unbelievable, and he. There's two things I really like, and I think, again, it's sort of a focus of um, when you listen to his music, he's he's sort of never, he never stays still. He always moves on. So, um, and he does stuff that people don't expect him to do, and he challenges all the time, and, it, and, it, and he, he doesn't want to go back. So he doesn't, there's one of the big things, all the original you know it was in the jam and all the jam fans I was sort of big in when I was a teenager um everybody wanted him to reform the band and reap and he just won't do it because he just want there's so much more forward than there is back and I think it's a really interesting sort of that not being respect uh retrospective all the time and go, always looking forward is a very sort of creative thing um and he just doesn't conform, which I really like. And the other thing is, is that mod thing, which I think is really important. You know, the idea of the subculture. Um, you know, if you go back, I think Phil will probably, sorry, Phil, to kick on on your age here, but the idea of mods, you know, the, 
the idea of a mod was a subculture out of London, wasn't it? In the mid 1950s. I think it was about 20 years after you were born, Phil. Was that right? You know, and, you know, they, they, they sort of listened to modern jazz and they were sort of, that's why they were called sort of, um, you know, uh, mods. But I think actually the idea of mod, mod as a mod has sort of changed. It's sort of it, the idea of modernism, which is that you, you have an appreciation of music, style, literature, art, design, architecture. So I think it's more of a deep, so there's a dress and the style thing and the whole mod culture, but there's a wider attitude to life. And I think Paul Weller has that. And I, I really buy into that. And I think a lot of the creative, it's like a soul, really. It's like a British soul. Um, so I think having music and comedy in that lift would do it for me. Do you know what? I actually want to be in that lift right now. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just kind of, I'm sitting here thinking, I wish I was in that lift. You know, yeah. like, so I've do of, I. So I've do gone, I. I've kind of gone there, gone there in my. <laughs> Yeah. Brilliant. I need to bring it back to the interview now. That was a great answer, Trevor. Yeah, like I'm, I'm there. I'm in the lift right now. Trevor, just a bit of a big question. You've had an incredible career, highs and lows in different directions. But for those that don't know Mr. Trevor Chambers, tell us a little bit about how you started out and what's your background? What fueled you and started you and, you know, sort of led in those different directions that your career's taken? Um, well, yeah, that's the just thing. I mean, I suppose it all started, and this sounds weird. If you, if I go back to my sixth form at school, so I, I hadn't really applied myself to anything at school other than sport. I was pretty much in every school team, and I was cycle racing at the time from a very early age. But the only, and the only other thing was art and drawing. Um, but and I'd given the impression, and a lot of people had a view that particularly teachers in all the classes that wasn't that smart but actually there was a deeper I think I had there was a deeper underlining problem that was hidden I think you know that went back to when I was very young which I I uh, had been very ill when I was six years old and missed almost a year of school and I think this had a massive impact on my sort of reading ability and also you know probably now I think it would be diagnosed but um you know that I've having dyslexia or a form or some sort of had an effect as well. So I struggled with this every day, but it was hidden and it just, you just didn't talk to anyone about it. I suppose I was very young enough. You didn't really understand it either. Um, and, you know, if you think about a dyslexia, even now, if you, it's quite interesting. If you, if you search for a word on Google and you can't spell it, it's interesting to see what results you get back. <laughs> um, <laughs> And some words just don't work out for me. And, I, and you'll laugh at this, but I was trying to spell orchestra yesterday. And right. I just start with an A. And I even went on, and I have Grammarly, and I just, and, but I, it wasn't giving me the word back every time I put it in. And um, those are things you sort of deal with. So the system, I suppose I drifted through the system and pretty much failed all my exams because I just couldn't get the words down on paper. Wow. They're all in my head. I think there are a lot of creative people will understand this is you've got a lot going on in your head, but you can't get it on the paper. You can't spell the word. So in the end, you try and replace it or you simplify or you just don't write. But um, luckily enough, I had an art teacher who, who'd inspired me and he, he was the only one who showed any interest other than the sports teachers. And he managed to persuade the school to let me stay on in the sixth form and do A-level art and technical drawing and take up 
retake all my GCSEs with with an ambition to go to art school. So that I think that's how it sort of started. And all I knew at that point was I wanted to do something with art. And that was as much. Um, and then um, at the end of the first year, I did my A-level art a year early, passed, and the technical drawing. And it meant staying on another year to do maths and English, all the things I hated. Um, and then the art teacher came to me and said, look, I've got a contact in a creative design studio called Brian Norman Studio, which was one of the best studios in London at the time. Um, they need a messenger. Do you want, would you like to go and talk to them? So I jumped on a train, went up to London and um, they offered me a trial for a day and I got the job because I could run fast. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no creative skill involved in the job other than, I looked thin, I could run fast, which meant I could deliver the parcels and get the coffees and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, so I arrived in this really cool sort of um, agency, uh, sort of studio, creative studio at the time. And it was just the most, you know, it was so exciting to be in Soho, you know, as a junior. And um, I'll tell you a bit about the job is, the truth is, I didn't, they didn't even give me a chair or a desk. I got a shelf. <laughs> so, and this was at a time when you, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't complain about sort of rights or anything like that. So I got a minimum wage. I got a shelf, and which my sandwiches went on. Which predominantly every day, someone would do something to them. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, one of the classic stories that early on, I think my first week, um, they cut out triangles of acetate and placed them inside my sandwiches. Oh, <laughs> so, you know, oh acetate, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you imagine what that's like, you know. And, and, <laughs> but, um, but every day I was surrounded by the most talented people you've ever seen you know creative teams creating campaign ideas designers visualizers illustrators retouchers lettering artists typographers typesetters artworks the whole craft there were so many craft people together and everybody had one thing they were brilliant at this is before the mac obviously so you only pretty much did your bit of the craft and a single ad would take maybe 25 people to produce wow. But the, the the detail that went into everything, I think, you know, still we don't really reach these days. I think Phil could probably um, correlate that because, you know, things like even the detail around a headline and the way it was kerned and spaced, you know, was looked at over and over again by a number of people until it was perfection. Um and then I saw there was one guy who just wandered around. And I, you know, in my first week, I asked what his job title was. And they said, oh, that's the creative director. And to me, and you'll laugh now, he he was like a conductor in an orchestra. There you go. <laughs> so, um, I, I, one of my words I can't spell. Um, and he just sort of seemed to bring everything to together. And I just, that was the thing that connected me. And I thought, that's the role for me, because I haven't got that single thing that I can do brilliantly. I can draw, but I'm not an, an illustrator, you know. Um, and he, that was it. That was the right, that was the ambition. In, and But I never told anyone. I just kept that in my head and um, and just stuck with it. 
um, sucked up everything like a sponge, practiced on my own time. And within a year, I felt confident enough to uh, stretch the truth and get a job as a designer in a small uh, record label, um, Craig Fames just did record labels and various other stuff. And I told them because I'd worked at this place, I could do all this stuff. And they just took it then. You didn't really have a portfolio at that point. And that sort of put myself in that sort of uncomfortable place of, I think I can do it, but I haven't done it. And the first few weeks are quite stressful <laughs> because you're, 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 really, you're really doing stuff you've never done before, but you get through that and that's how you grow. So, um, Brilliant. yeah, I think, and then, it's just when one step like that, I had obviously I made a few wrong decisions along the way, but pretty much I always tried to step out of my comfort zone. And I think the biggest thing was that someone believed in you and gave you, and I think it did, that happened really when I joined Phil at APT, that someone gave you the freedom to grow and didn't set any parameters, didn't set any rules, didn't say you had to be, that's your job, just do that. And that no barriers thing was the thing that lifted me, I think. Uh, I think if I hadn't had that, I maybe would have, you know, never would have got, you know, kept on with my sort of, in a, in a sort of uh, career. And, um, you know, I think failure, I failed loads of times. I think there's that great Thomas Edison quote, I've not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. And I think being creative is like that. And I think in your career, if you, you learn not that you just embrace the failure um, and that's what kept me going, really. So that was the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the um, I, I think what you learn, I think, I, and I got, Phil helped me, you get, I got pushed into a very senior role or allowed to do a very senior role at a very early age. And, um, you know, had a lot. Of, uh, the guidance was really about what, I didn't really have any training as a creative director, but you just sort of learned from on the job. But you had the principles of how to look after people and how to manage a team from, you know, I've learned that from Phil and from a few other senior people. And... I think the big thing I would hand out to me was the greatest thing a leader of a team can bestow on any of his or her team is the idea of confidence and honesty. So directing is more about letting go than it is about controlling. And uh, I learned, I think I worked some dictators in the past and we've all, you know, creative can be run, great creative agencies have run on dictators who dictate everything. And they do a certain amount of good work for a while, but in the end that fails and it falls over. And I think, you, you know, if you can lead by allowing people to breathe and be their own person, I think, and that's the thing I learned very early on from Phil and it, it, and it, and it set with me. So, and I think that's what helped me all the way through. That's brilliant. Oh. Well, well, Trevor, Trevor, you, uh, from those days in the Walworth Road where it was, we were effectively a studio and we kept growing beyond our, our dreams. You know, we started with seven or eight of us, ended up with 90 people in a studio working 24 hours. It was a different world back then. But in the more, bringing it more up to date, you became 
Executive Creative Director at EHS Realtime and EHS Brand. And they were one of the first truly integrated agencies of the time. Um, tell us a little bit what that was like, the work, the culture, the pace, uh, and the size of the creative floor. I think maybe maybe you were at 80 people on the creative yeah, floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 22 creative teams. I think we had Phil, 16 designers and a, and a group of art workers. And then we had a traffic production department, about eight people as well, didn't we? It was it was yeah. massive. I think when I first, yeah, when that first happened, I think that was sort of a big step. It was sort of like um, amazing to get that, you know, to be in that position. Um, it, scary, stressful um but really good fun and i think at that time i think we had we had a bit of a perfect storm i think we had you know we had a culture and great work so that uh, and i think those things go hand in hand i think any i think there's another conversation probably we could all debate for hours around look what lockdown has done there's a lot of agencies and a lot of people businesses making a commitment to staying and working from home thinking that now this is the new future and I think there's a massive ingredient that's gonna that actually will get will miss its culture, particularly for younger ones. Um, but creativity, I think, in that environment and a competitive environment, I think when you're on your own, stuck in front of the computer and you're in your front room or in your bedroom, you lose that. So, um, and we had that in buckets when we were at that time. We had brilliant, I mean, brilliant creative people. I had creative people working for me that were so much better than me. It was scary, but actually, I think you know. Um, what's the what is there the saying about always be the idiot in the room and you'll always be successful? And I think the creatives there that we had teams. There's some, all of them were just you know genius, and you know they that that helped us. We had a creative mission, didn't we, Phil? And a and a healthy competition to do great work within. So teams would fight, they would pitch on work internally and fight a, a, around that. And, and I think the joyous culture and a bit of creative anarchy as well. I mean, even right through the business, the account managers, the project managers, there was just a, when we parted as well, everybody got on. It was, and I think it was just a rare time, wasn't it, Phil? It was... Um, it was, I mean, also hmm. it's frowned upon these days, like in... Um, the last decade, but just the pub culture, a lot of the best ideas that came out of those sessions were actually in the local pub, weren't they? You know, you had an art director, copywriter team with a pint of bitter each and brainstorming, and they'd come back and they'd say, we've cracked it. And I'm not sure that you would ever get away with that now. No. You know, you did that, you had a team of all skills there are a lot of specialists and your job was to bring that all together and encourage yeah. them. Oh, the teams, were the characterful uh, teams, I mean, obviously there's things they did in that time that you wouldn't do today. I mean, we had a team that would do Naked Thursdays <laughs> and they would just be naked from the waist down under their desk all day and stuff like that. We had, um, you know, we had a team that just couldn't work until... They would just spend so much time in the pub, but they would always deliver a great job and really fantastic work, but they'd do it the night before. 
So they, if you gave them two weeks on a brief, they'd spend most of that in the pub, <laughs> but they'd always deliver the work. And I think the culture allowed that freedom, didn't there? There was no nine to five such, you know, there was a little bit of later on as different MDs came in and the business was under pressure, they tried to lock it all down and then the work got affected and the culture then. But um, I think it was probably a very fortunate time. Um, we had some great clients as well. We had some really creative clients, so that helped. Um, I think, Trevor, they, I mean, just that, that talk around culture and, and teams is such a, an important one around, not just only in agency life, but in, in business in general. If you look at most industries now are looking at culture and how do you engage teams, particularly in this pandemic environment and what does life look like moving forward? Uh, you know, I mean, that's a whole podcast episode in itself, I think. Yeah. One, yeah. Of, one, of, one of the areas that, one something that's come up um, in a few of the episodes we've done is just sort of, and you've really highlighted it, is life outside the office. And I know that you guys used to play a lot of five-a-side football together. And yeah. uh, Phil says, Phil says you're, the, you, you're the Ronaldo of the football team. So I'm not going to doubt your skills. All I'm going to ask you is what was Phil like as a captain? What was he like? No, he, I, I actually Phil was a bit of a Van Nisseroy, actually. I mean, oh, like that because he, it, being a Man United supporter. I, I, the only trouble with Phil is once you pass him to the ball, you never got it back. Right, one of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he was sort of right. He just put his head down and he just went for goal. Um, so, but um, yeah, those, we had some great times. I think, I think culturally, I think a lot of the business are, do do that today I think there's a lot of outside and that the idea of outside in because um particularly for creative if you think about the influences that you have outside is what generates your ideas um I don't know if you there's a series called everything's a remix I don't know if you've ever seen that series but the idea that um to have good ideas there's no there's no such thing as an original idea everything is a remix and it's a copy and we all have to first we learn to copy and then you start to the next step is to bring two things together that you've seen to make something new and then you go from there so all those things outside make a real difference and and you build the camaraderie and that sort of collective spirit um, and we were very good at that, weren't we, Phil, at that time? Yeah, look, we had, there was a massive social influence way before social networking and way before digital. Mm. We, we were always doing things that got people together outside of work. And a lot of our good friends now, mine as well as Trevor's, are designers that we grew up with in the 80s that had really successful design agencies before the Apple Mac came around and then then it became getting used to that technology and then digital but it actually it's the it's what goes on behind the scenes and that patting people on the back and saying well done and getting them out of the office it made a huge difference yeah. back then um my next question trev is if you had to pick one or two pieces of work that really define the era for you this is the area when you had the, the big agency, the HS Real Time. Um, what would you look back on with fondness and what pieces of work really stood out to you? Yeah, um, well, we obviously had Diesel that we'd brought on from um, Diesel Fashion Brand, which we brought in from Real Time, hadn't we? And we would develop, we, we 
we had a great relationship with Bob, who's still a friend now, and and, and Wilbert there, um, who's um, the creative director, fashion creative director. And that work always stood out. I mean, every time we, we won so many awards with all that work, but it was, again, we were dealing with creative people as clients and the freedom they gave us allowed some brilliant work. I mean, we had the, um, the Style Lab sort of um, campaign, which was, you know, things like don't go there, don't click here, you know, don't follow this link. We did some really amazing work then. Yeah. And I think the best bit of work that we did early on at the DHS sort of real time was the mini launch, which we done. We won alongside um, WCRS um, and it was a group thing, wasn't it? But um, we launched mini in the UK and some of that work was just fantastic. I mean, the, the DM work that we did um, that Nick Moffat and um, Tristan did was just fantastic. And it still stands today. I mean, it won lots, it did DMA golds and things like that, but the, the really proud generally of all that work. Um, and there was so much of it. You know, Actually, we were, can I stop you there, Trev, because the, yeah. you mentioned the mini going, and the previous question was around the culture and having fun. Do you remember what we did in regards when, when we won the mini account, what we did that we then shared with all of the staff? Remember that? Yeah, I mean that I mean I think that was one of your initiatives, Phil, was the you know, that we bought a mini Cooper for the company, branded it with the company brand, and you got it nominated it to take it for a long weekend. So it's a bit like a reward thing, but it was done through the teams if you thought someone and anyone could get it and it, it sort of that really um people loved it because it was just and mini was cool as well and it was new and um you know so that it was such a simple thing to do i think obviously the scale of the agency but it did people used to come in and then we'd have the photos and all the sort of and and that created internal sort of demand to try to win the mini for a weekend you know and uh, I, th I think it was just again it was a cultural thing it was brilliant um yeah. funny story about cultural thing actually just quickly was there's a, obviously a lot of companies to do good culture stuff there's a lot of forced fun which i don't always think works so well but um i was interviewing a a young designer about a year and a half ago and at the end of the interview i said have you got any questions for us and her question was, what's your graze bar policy? And I just thought it was quite funny that the new era is more interested in what, whether we've got um, organic food to graze on. <laughs> <laughs> then actually, you know, what do you go down the pub and get smashed or, you know, do you, do you give out a mini or, you know, what do you do to be more creative? And that, that was quite funny. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I bet that was a moment. And your yeah. mind must have been wearing, how do I answer this? Yeah, I didn't even know what a graze bar was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> yeah, I beg your pardon? Yeah, it's brilliant. We got free peanuts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, so I mean, obviously, you know, you, you know you, you've referenced Bill and you, you guys have done a lot of work together professionally and kind of, it's, it's a little, it's a, it's a slight, it's a slight tongue in cheek question, but also a serious one. So, you know, you, you've been a lot of pictures together and you kind of know your space, but tell me as someone who's not been in a picture, Phil Jones, what does the old fella add to your pictures? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it starts with obviously the real, I think what Phil did and I, I you know, and it, it took me a while to get it actually, I'll be honest, because I didn't, uh, APT and you're probably a bit immature and as a creative, but to understand the relationship with the client first and how hard it is to get clients and build. And that was the G that I think that always used to start is the minute you stepped in the room, there was a, there was a deeper relationship so even when you're on pitches, the relationship was deep enough that the clients sort of wanted you to win it because they liked, they had this relationship with Phil already they'd developed. And that, that's, that's really difficult to do. I mean, that, that takes a lot of time and effort and care and, and you know, and I, I, and I think once you, once you saw that, so Phil, Phil always brought that. And we used to argue, fairly enough, in the early days of real time, there's quite a lot of arguments because we, you know, creatively didn't understand certain things, but um, I'd, I'd urge anybody who's creative to just go out and try and win your own client and build a relationship with it with them, and then you'll understand that. And yeah, that's powerful. And then the next thing was we all, and I think real time, particularly, I think it was something in digital came out of digital. Really, was this sort of attitude of anything goes, and every day is a new dawn. In the early days of digital, there was no rules. And I think one of the big problems we've got today with digital is it's become so controlled. All you know, even all the social platforms are controlling creativity and what you can do. In the early days, it was like the Wild West. There was total freedom, which meant every day you go, what am I going to invent today? What am I going to do that's different? And the pitches, Phil encouraged that within the pitches. And I think... What set the tone was, and I think it was Phil's idea, actually, is we did a pitch for Canon UK very early on. And <laughs> we were second on, and it was two agencies down to last two. And we knew we were on first. And we had a really good pitch, and we went in. And we, at the time, we had to take a full uh, stack computer because everything we did wouldn't run on anything else. We had to take our own computer in with our own IT guy to set up and our own wow. projectors and kit then was really difficult because no one had nothing plugged into anything. Peter Peterson that was. Yeah. And, and, um, and Phil had this idea that we would, uh, we would break down the pitch after us in some way. What could we do to, so we, we branded, we brought a set of alarm clocks, Canon digital alarm clocks, branded them with real time, uh, and then we wrapped them up and we set it, set them all to go off 10 minutes into the next presentation. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think we got the story back was is that they did actually, even the other agency found it funny. <laughs> it broke up. Uh, it broke up the sort of thing, but it reminded them right in the middle of the other presentation who the other agency was, because they had to open these packages, break and down the box, the yeah. and turn off these alarms. So um, <laughs> now it's probably very underhand, I mean, you could, it, you know, it's, but um, there was a lot of that. And I, I think that pitch theatre seems to have gone, you know, particularly with the inset of uh, procurement into um right. pitches you the the theater of pitches has gone um <laughs> you remember because it was on the same funny we pitched for the premier league website and when we were down to the last two or three 
at Lancaster Gate before they moved. And each of our team was standing up doing their bit. And you did your bit, all about the creative. And uh, we had one of the tech guys doing all of the technical stuff involved. And then our head of strategy, Sinjin, got up to talk strategy. And strategy back then was, was in early days. It was the early days of digital strategy. And he was doing his thing. And as he came back, I pulled the chair up for him. And he sat down and I pulled the chair further back and he went flat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and opposite was Richard Scudamore and all the big cheeses of the Premier League. And they were just in hysterics. And <laughs> Enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. That was that. I, I think the thing, though, Phil, was that you could never have done that if you hadn't got that relationship and you knew the clients well enough exactly. to know when to be able to do that. And I, I and I think the, the relationship thing is sort of a lot of clients these days. It's very invisible, isn't it? You go in and you'll pitch, and they've got a little score sheet, and um, but you've still got to work together. You've all got to work together. And um, it's it's a lot harder, I think, these days to to win yeah. new business. And and there's a, a hugely competitive space nowadays, isn't it? Everyone is largely saying very similar things and competing for services. And it's very easy for a client to, you know, if you go onto LinkedIn, your LinkedIn inbox can be as busy as your as yeah. your work mailbox, can't it? So it's yeah. But these principles are timeless and they're absolute gold. You know, I'm just as you guys are talking, I'm thinking about young people that are, you know, agency startups or people coming at university looking to embark on their career. These are sort of timeless principles that really do put you in good stead. So I think it's amazing. Just sort of picking up on that, Trevor, just, you know, you've mentioned Phil and you guys have obviously had a great um, working relationship together. Who were some of the greatest influences on your career and why outside of um, Batman over there? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't really got sort of one or, two, I mean, you know, Phil obviously from working together and, and, and mentoring, definitely. I think from a creative point of view, it was bits of everybody. In fact, right. there was a lot of people that I met along the way. And what I learned from them is all the things that I don't want to be, which was actually, and sometimes they have a bigger impact. You go, I don't want to be anything like that guy. Um, there was an early craft director, which I won't mention his name, but um, used to throw work out of the window if he didn't like it. So you'd go and he, he he was on the fifth floor, so you'd go up, show your work, and you, you, you would present it, and he would just go, shit, 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 that's all awful. He'd open the, open the window and just throw it into the car park. No. Go some more, you know. Um, I think those sort of scary people had a bigger, bigger influence on me because you just go, I don't want to be like them, but how can I get to their level and not be like them, which I, I, I think. Um, I had a really good relationship with Patrick Collister when he joined DHS um, and he came from above the line and he had a big influence on sort of thinking about training and different ways of working. So he, he, he's been, and I, he, I still help Patrick with the Capels Awards and um, he, he's been very valuable over the years as, as um, but actually, funny enough, probably the biggest influence was was a lot of the creatives that worked for me over the years that you just 
you 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 realize how good they are at what they do and in a way you you're lifted by those people you you know because without them in your team you're just a you know it's down to you and and it's very difficult to deliver and sometimes you get a lot of credit for what other people do as a creative director and I was very aware of that brilliance around you is the thing that lifts you up so um yeah no no one no real no I'm probably expecting me to sort of rattle off sort of famous it's it's so interesting to hear people's journeys and how they've they've evolved we spoke to um Helen Keyes from Phillips she's at Phillips now and yeah hearing some of the sort of, you know, there were people in her life that almost plotted her career into the next stage. And, you know, the, the nature of our industry, we were talking about this before before the recording started, is that, you know, there is no fixed path, is there? There is no linear path in our industry. You know, you meander from client side to agency side, from one role to another role. So, you know, often people will go freelance for a period or start their own thing and then come back. And it's it's such a diverse um industry and such a sort of you know a, a wide ability to to make a career but it's hard and it's tough yeah. and you know we, we'll talk a little bit about that later and obviously I think Phil you want to talk a little bit about because where you've landed now at TSB is a really you know interesting you know, interesting part of your career so I think Phil you've got yeah. some questions on that haven't you? Yeah Trevor you've been there almost two years now uh, so tell us how it's been client side and and if there are any campaigns that you've worked on in the last year that you can actually share with us um first of all it was um you know if you'd asked me maybe 15 years ago would you work for a bank I would have laughed you know actually and and this is the interesting of how as you said that Dan how things change and how uh your views change but um I, I, and it all came from a coincidence of bumping into Keith Gulliver um, at a WeWork office where I had my office at the time and a conversation and a chat and a coffee and then it went on and on. And and then when I thought about the opportunity, I thought, I've never done this before. What would it be like? Could you do better work if you were nearer to the client? And... Um, they were going through a rebrand and there was going to be a lot of new work and it was setting up a team working with Oliver, which I'd never worked with Oliver. So we, I'd be managed, I'd be dealing with Oliver as having some of their people. And there was a lot of things I'd never done. And that's what attracted me to it because I thought, can I do what I like doing in that environment, in a very corporate environment? Um, there was a big culture shock day one going into the city, into a big banking building with a, you know, the, the floor which the creative department was or creative team were on was, you know, just as big as I've ever seen with just rows and rows of desks. And um, I think it took them two weeks to give me an email address. And um, the tech is, I think, probably the biggest been the biggest frustration because you're obviously you're just suddenly in a world of horror when it comes to tech so we're, we're agency we're all free to deal with our own tech and you know and it's well managed suddenly you're locked down where uh, you can't do anything without you can't even copy and paste from a browser into a word document on your platform because it's just because of security but the people have been brilliant it's been I've learned a hell of a lot and, you know, wherever I go, I think 
it's been eye-opening in, in a way to be in the marketing team, sit on marketing calls. Um, and I'd urge any creative, if you get the opportunity, try it. You know, not maybe not all your career, but it's, it's definitely, it will add to your roundness and, and it will help you do better work. You know, it's not without its challenges, but um, the people are brilliant. And um, unfortunately, I've been in out of over a year of it. I've been in lockdown, so I've been working from home. But um, you know, we've certainly done some nice work. The main campaign, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, was done by McCann. So the current campaign you can see with um, um, Michael um, Schrimmer from Friends in um, that was created by McCann's and we've worked alongside them. We've done some really nice sort of support work, but they, they've been the main agency because that they, they set that sort of style before I joined and they've been really good to work with, very collaborative. Um, so it, it's, it's been a great experience so far. How does your relationship with agencies work now, your client side? Are you kind of getting payback or are you kind of, you know, it's, it must be very, very different. And, you know, how does that look? And you mentioned you know, sort of Oliver and McCann. I think you're working with Seven Stars as well. Now your client side, and you're, are you choosing agencies? Are you sitting there? Are you evaluating them on your, on your standards and your career? Or, Well, yeah, it's weird because what you're suddenly in is, is that, the scale of everything means you're not involved in everything. You know, when you're a creative director or exec CD of an agency, you see absolutely everything you have a say. And so you, there's a load of stuff that you don't have a say in because the marketing department in all is about 100 people. Right. So it's huge. Um, I don't have a say in where the, the agency choices are done by at the sort of uh, the chief marketing officer level. And there is some stuff that you have to accept that you and I've and that is hard because I don't agree with it. You know, you, you're going to have your view, and it, it's the creative thing. You want to be the one who owns it and and leads it and directs it. Um, so yeah, there is there's, there's a there's a little bit of mellowing you have to do going client side, um, but we've been determined not to fall into the. I think one of the biggest failings or criticisms of in-house agencies has been a, the idea of complacency and, um, oh, well, we're going to get, we just do the work and there's no challenge. So we are, you know, the big thing has been to continually create, challenge the work and do the best you possibly can and keep moving it on and, and challenge your teams around you like you're an external agency. And, We've had some really good success. I mean, um, some uh, a couple of recent campaigns have out way outperformed the external agency that had the account before, and that's with Oliver helping to support with the with the production teams. But it's been a been a TSB driven internal driven creative that has done that. Um, so yeah, I think um, it's interesting times. I mean, obviously we're all in a in a very strange world, aren't we, at the moment? Right. Up until recently, Trev, you, your um, head of marketing, CMO, was Pete Markey. And he said in an interview that the biggest influences, if you like, on TSB going forward are data and creative. So he's, he's nailed his mask to both of those. And you're, you're heading up one of the two. So that must be must make you feel fairly secure that that's you've made the right decision there. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Pete 
said that, and then he's gone and taken a job at Boots as CMO. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and in fact, Pete Pete's wonderful. I think he's he was really lovely to work with. Really, really smart guy, and um, they they were very supportive. And he was instrumental in in obviously alongside Keith Gulliver and um, Emma Stacey in driving the new brand and the new position for TSB through through the business but I think the you know we've done the brand bit now and we're working through you know, there, but there is still the numbers they've got to you know like all all like all businesses they've got to deliver numbers and data so they, they they're switched over to the Adobe platform so that you get this single customer view and you can join everything up so our, and I think with a lot of the big banks the legacy systems are probably a bit archaic compared to say you know your your new you know your monzos and your starlings which have been able to set up from new um you know have that advantage of starting from afresh but i think you know we're catching up and i think it's going to be interesting battle over the next couple of years as all the big banks really bring their digital up to speed i think there's a accenture have just done a sort of a, a study on this white paper for the next couple of years and they're, they're talking about the big banks sort of pushing forward and only a few of the the, the sort of uh, new breed surviving. I think all those independent apps will fall by the wayside because they can only offer so much. And I think as you, you know, we're introducing all sorts of the digital features in our banking app and there's more to come. And I think it's going to be an interesting time. And, and then, then, a lot of the marketing, you know, your brand bit is done. A lot of the marketing, day-to-day marketing will be done through the platforms. So digital, to Pete's right, is digital. It's full on, you know, we, we, as a bank, they're just going to get sharper and sharper with their digital offering. Yeah, interesting. Trevor, what do you do for, for fun? What do you do to relax outside of, you know, like you said, this in like environment that you're in now? What, what's keeping you? Was I mean again, obviously, in the, like you said, you know, lock, the lockdown environment. But yeah, what 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 chills your mind out? What what keeps you? Um, well, I shave my legs. Right there, we go. Wasn't expecting that. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> but there is a reason for that. No, I'm, I'm, cycling's my thing. I think um, is my big thing. Obviously, music is a is a big sort of relaxing thing. Cycling is really my passion. I rode into London for 30 plus years, you know, and up to the lockdown, I was riding in every day. And then I, you know, I cycle, I sort of cycled. I came from a cycling family. So my my mother and father went on their honeymoon on a tandem. And in fact, my mother's still got the tandem in the garage. She can't ride it anymore. But um, so, yeah, that's, that's my passion. And in lockdown, it's sort of got, we've sort of all moved in inside. So, you know, uh, everyone's become, uh, you know, gone onto platforms like Swift, which is a sort of a gamification of um, cycling. Um, I use a more sort of tailored one, which is a more sort of uh, training program. And and when you say it's fun, it's probably the the worst hour of your life every day. Wow. In your you sit in on a turbo trainer trying to hold a heart rate and a maximum wattage and following a sort of data chart, sweat pouring off you, wanting to give up every two minutes. 
Um, but there's a sort of perverse pleasure pleasure when you finish. <laughs> That's even what in, even fun. in your relaxation, yeah, it's like super intense and super like yeah, yeah. It's where it is, and it's addictive. Like exercise, sport, and exercise has always been addictive to me. So I can't go more than about a day without it. It's um, and you know I will play if someone asks me to do any sport, I will go and do it. You know, brilliant. Apart, apart from parachuting. <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> yeah, yeah oh yeah tell us about that what's this thing with you and heights then trevor uh i don't know I, well mike you, you asked you know the the, the fear is flying flying is just doesn't do it for me um i don't like the experience of flying the going to the airport queuing up that whole thing it just doesn't work for me and um and then i actually quite like the takeoff and the landing but then the rest of the time sitting in that chair is just, I'm just waiting for something to happen. And your mind, I don't know if it's a great thing. Your mind just ticks. So I can't get my mind off where I am. So, um, and then when you land, it's like winning the lottery. <laughs> Do you ever clap? Have you ever clapped? You know, sometimes you get on the planes, especially the Americans, they love to clap when they land. I don't just clap, I get up and cheer. <laughs> I mean, I've got a rattle. <laughs> I think my, my idea of flying would be um, you book a flight. And then what they do is they send you to these sort of special sleeping pills in a little jiffy bag. And it says, take these one hour um, before uh, we pick you up and then climb inside this box. So take them climb, and then you put the box in the doorstep and they come and pick you up and the box and they put you on a plane with everybody else and they deliver you to the hotel and then you wake up and you get out the box and you're there. <laughs> <That'd> be... <laughs> There's a startup idea right there. Yeah. Just think of how easy it would be. You could get 10 times as many people on the plane. That's you could right. have your luggage in the box with you. Yeah. Just yeah. slot the boxes in together. Yeah, exactly. And if, yeah. if a plane had a problem, each box has a little parachute on it and they just eject all the boxes out. <laughs> <laughs> if, there's any, all, uh, if there's any investors listening to this right now, there we go. Yeah. 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 question here for you, Trev. Just, yeah. um, have you got memories of a wow moment where you've gone in, pitched an idea to a client where you've knocked them off their seats, if you like, and then the contrary to that, a nightmare pitch. Have you got anything to say on one or both of those two items? Yeah. Um, funnily enough, the wow one, I think, was probably something really small. But um, I remember when we were at real time, we, you'd, we'd been trying to get into the FA and we had an opportunity to pitch for the World Cup 2006. Yeah. Pitch identity and, and branding and we we were up against all the credible uh, agencies at the time and we were really an outsider i don't know how we i can't remember how we got on that list phil i, I, think it I can it's because yeah. we did that calendar in 1996 that was it yeah. that had that beautiful digital photography before digital photography was spoken about and we put together that sports calendar and the printer who was related to you uh, had a copy that he sent to the FA. And when the FA saw the calendar, they said, we've got to get these people on our pitch list because this is amazing. 
So that you, so you can take it from there. But I remember we we, we went in and presented our our um, concepts for the logo, and we didn't do a lot of pre preamble. We we had like three slides, I think. We didn't. We just went straight into it. We just felt quite confident about what we had. And as soon as it went up on screen, I just watched them all smile. And I just sort of knew there and then it, they bought it. I don't know why. And at the end of the meeting, I think um, they came out and it was on my birthday as well. Um, they said, we'd let you know. And, and sorry, the next day was my birthday and they called us back in and I went in and they told us there and then, yeah, you won it and you knocked it out of the park straight away and we love it. And we're pretty much buying the logo as it is um, and the identity. And, and I think that was a moment that was just joy because um, we'd achieved so much. We'd achieved beating all these sort of competitors. We'd got a really massive... We were hoping we were going to win the World Cup. We didn't because we lost. It was actually, it was, wasn't it for Euro 2006? No, it was World Cup 2006. World Cup 2006. Yeah, but Germany won it, didn't they? They beat us on oh, penalties that's again. Right, that's right. And we had a German designer working as part of our team. Do you remember um, Ingo? Ingo, yeah, brilliant. Um, that was the that was at Lancaster Gate. That pitch. It was that I said earlier on about the Premier League being Lancaster Gate. Of course, it wasn't. Uh, it was the FA, yeah. Yeah, but it was the FA, and that was we were scared. It was just you and me, wasn't it? We yeah. Were scared to death going into that room, we came out oh. with winning it. Yeah. Yeah. On right. the negative, on the bad ones, uh, lots and lots of bad. Again, if the relationship and the feeling in the room isn't right, sometimes you walk in and you just sort of know straight away, and maybe your team you haven't quite got it together. One thing I've sort of noticed over the years is. It never seems to work when the front of the deck is too long and too people drift and they just want to see the creative. And it, and sometimes the strategy people just... I've met a lot of people along the way that talk a lot, that are really good at talking but don't say much, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and yep. um, so when we was at EHS, there was a genius idea that we would do a thing called the five-minute pitch and we would go in... And we'd go to our, our start was, right, we're going to give you the idea in five minutes and we're going to show you the core creative in five minutes. If you don't like it after five minutes, we'll leave at that point and you've got the rest of the time back to have a coffee, relax, and we've not wasted your time and you've not wasted ours. But if you like it, then we'll carry on and show you the full deck, full strategy, the media plan, cost, everything. Anyway, we did this three in a row and they loved it and we won three in a row. But then the fourth time we went in and we did the five minutes and the market director said, no, you can leave. And, and it was like the walk of shame, you know, like <laughs> packing up your gear while everybody's trying to, or while all his team are trying to look out the window and we sort of, your heads are down and everyone. So we never did it after that. It was sort of... Um, but I think that's probably the worst moment of being told after five minutes you've got to leave. That's brilliant. I didn't know about that one. Yeah. Uh, I know Trevor's always had a thing about salesmen not doing enough in presentations to impress clients. And I remember I hired a salesperson once and Trevor came into my office complaining 
and uh, as he did quite often actually, but he came <laughs> into my office and said, why have you hired that plonker? And I said, would you know him? He said, no, I don't know him. I said, well, wh why are you assuming he's a plonker? And he said, check his shoes out. <laughs> and I looked at his shoes and they were really shiny. So I said, yeah, I'm looking at his shoes. What, what am I supposed to be looking at? And he said, well, anyone who's got that much time to actually shine their shoes is not going to be of any use to us whatsoever. <laughs> I, I just went back in my office laughing my head off. And you know, he was bloody right. <laughs> if I had listened to Trevor's logic on that day, I, we'd have saved six months of pain. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Well, there was that shot. I think he was... I don't mean new shiny shoes. What I meant is shoes that are old, that have been overshined. And he's obviously very passionate about them as well at the time. Funny thing that Phil's missed out of that story is you, you got rid of him a couple months later because he walked into a meeting late with a project management Bible thing under his arm. Do you remember? And he, yeah, he oh, yeah. had a book about how to run meetings or something under his arm. And he turned up to meeting five minutes late and you crucified him for it. I, I just said, uh, uh, you know, when he apologised for being late, I said, it's probably something you've read in that book there on how to, how to stage <laughs> things. Uh, he never recovered from that. No, that was, it wasn't just the shiny shoes. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> um, so, Dan, I think we, we're at the roundup stage. Yeah, I know. I feel like we could talk all, all day, couldn't we? There's so much depth here, which is really great. Yeah. I mean, just a couple more questions from my side, really. Just, you know, your creative life right now. You know, you're working from home with three grown-up kids and, and, and obviously um, your wife as well, you know. So it must be make some interesting moments over the last sort of year or so. And how are you all coping? And, and, and what, are your, what are your sort of... What does your family life look like at the moment? What are your children up to? Um, well, yeah, we've got obviously got... Five at home. I mean, uh, one of my, my youngest son is, he was furloughed, but he's now, he works for Warner Brothers, um, uh, Delane Lee in their sort of um, edit and sound and grading suite in Soho. And he's, he's back in every day. Um, it's, yeah, I think we've sort of coped. I think, you know, we, like all, um, I think it's tougher on the younger ones particularly um you know my son's in his uh, middle son's in his sort of first year of grad after university in a in a property development company and he's moving around the departments so he, he's only he was only there for four months before he went into lockdown so right. he's having to move department without into completely new departments without meeting any you know without actually meeting anyone and so he's found it very difficult I think again, you know, we go back on that culture and the support, and the particularly for the young ones. I think I've noticed it. We, I've also been really admirable of, of the way they're dealing with it. Really, um, you know, and uh, it's been such a long time, isn't it? It has really been a long time, and I think all you can do is we've been trying to say is that it could be worse. You've all got jobs, you know. There's, you know, imagine you're a you're a single mum with three kids and, you know, your kids are now not at school. You know, you're, you're stuck in a small flat. You've got, you know, money problems. I mean, all those things. So you have, you know, forgetting the health side of it, I think the emotional side, but um, it's definitely been tough. And uh, we've, we've got a sort of a move around the house system 
So my desk I have is in my daughter's bedroom now because she's come back home to live home for a while. So we sort of move around the house. And I think my wife's found it the most difficult because every room she goes into, someone goes, shh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone's so, on a video call somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had a lot of arguments about the Hoover being on. Right. <laughs> and actually the dog's probably enjoyed it the most because he's never had this many people at home and that and that many walks. And in fact, he keeps oh. looking up and go, oh, for God's sake, not another walk. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite yeah. a creative family though, because Molly's also works for a digital agency. Yeah, she works for Tommy. Um, yeah. So yeah, she's great. They've been very good, and um, she's they've kept working right throughout. Um, I think our biggest challenge has actually been dealing with deliveries, because right. I've been a door answerer constantly, and I haven't ordered anything. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what that is. It's oh. weird, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and actually, you get to know the delivery guys. I think I know them better than I do people at work now. <laughs> do they have shiny shoes? Have you checked? No, I've got I've got a um, a guy. He, he's just wonderful. Um, and I started chatting to me. He he he's he just such a nice character, and he gets out, and he's always happy. And even when it was the worst of weather and snowing, he's got dreadlocks, and he's just a warm wonder. I and mean, you're sort of guy that you go. Do you know what? I'd like really like to spend have a few beers with you when this is all over. And he just he always asks how you are and how the family is. He just seems and you know those delivery guys are all rushing around, but he seems to have time for everybody. And I, and I think I don't know if that's a cultural thing, but he's just that he's warm um, and friendly. You um, know, you might have just answered my next question then. Yeah, but I'm hoping you might have a backup. So, so apart from Leicester City winning the Premier League. What was the last thing you saw that you thought that's that's wonderful? Um, well, la last year, uh, and it's a sport thing, obviously cycling. I think it's probably my uh, uh, a young guy called Teo, Teo Gegenhart won the Gyro, which is the Tour of Italy, which is probably the second biggest Grand Tour behind the Tour de France. Um, he's from London. You know, he's a, he's an East sort of, um, I think he's an Arsenal supporter, Phil, which is bad news. <laughs> uh, so he's done. And he, he, he wasn't supposed to win it. He was there basically uh, in his first, first sort of race, uh, first gyro to support uh, G, who, um, the Welsh rider, who crashed in the first few days. He was the team leader and was withdrawn through, had to withdraw through injury. And... There's a great sort of learning here was that the um, David Brailsford sort of reset the team, you know, and Sky's always been a sort of mar this sort of idea of marginal gains. And they always won, they always won by wearing everybody down and just having these little, lots of little advantages that all added up. But um, he sort of let, he let the reins go. He let them be free. And he sort of changed the start. And in that race, they sort of changed their whole outlook and style of racing. And Teo just sort of in the background slowly just come to the fore and in the last, on, and, and pretty much won it on the second to last day uh, on the time trial or on the last day. And it was just wonderful to see a young man achieve so much. 
Wow. Brilliant. Um, Very good. And he was the sort of unexpected hero. And I suppose the, the issue he's got now is how does he follow that up? And um, it was just, it was lovely to watch because it was, and it was quite heartwarming in a, you know, in um, in a time when things were really tough. So I think that's the answer. Great answer. Brilliant. Brilliant. And final question, Trevor. As an agency, we're all about making complex problems wonderfully simple. What's one of sort of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler? Oh, you shouldn't have asked me this one, really. Oh, no. Well, no, it, it, <laughs> it's one of my big... I don't know if it's an age thing. I don't know if you just get more frustrated with complexity as you get older. Um, and I could bang on a long list. So, you know, and I think... <laughs> Shiny shoes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, supposed, we're in this digital, fast-moving world. And yet everything seems to be doing the opposite, which is trying to slow you down. And processes and sort of even, even you know, websites don't seem to do the basics. So there's lots of that. But I think, I think yeah, one thing is train and tube turnstiles. And I don't use them that often. And I just don't understand why when I get off the train, I have to then queue for ages to go through and just tap my card and then walk on and then queue again to go through the turnstile to tap my card. You know, when I go back to when I first started working in London in the eighties, you got off the train and walked straight out of the station. No one, you know, they suddenly they've slowed. So, t and technology is going to have an answer. Technology must have an answer to that where it can just speed you up. You know, why do you need barriers? I know it's because they want to catch the people who haven't paid for their ticket, but everybody else suffers because of it. So I know it sounds a really stupid thing, but, um, yeah, I, I'm, I think digital has got so much more it can do, and I think we're only touching the surface of it, aren't we? And yeah, agreed. It's there to make our life more efficient and better so we can spend the time on the things that we want to do. And that's when I, when, when, when digital is invisible, I think it's just genius. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Victor Meldrew. <laughs> <laughs> I like the ending there. I like the last bit when digital is invisible. It's genius. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Sure is. <laughs> Trevor, that's been such a brilliant interview. I've known you 35 years and half of the stuff you told me, I didn't know. So it's just brilliant. Thank you, mate. Well, thanks for asking. Thanks, Dan, for hosting it. And, and thanks, Phil. Um, for the three people that are going to listen to me, thank you. Trevor <laughs> <laughs> Chambers, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.